Now, we all know it's, it's the Christmas season, and with the Christmas season always comes the risk, the temptation to do what? Go into debt. That's right. Spend. And you, we, can, we, we always tend to be a little bit looser with our money and our credit cards and all that stuff at Christmas time. Isn't that true? Someone gives you something, you have to reciprocate. You give them something back. All these cultural things that we, we find ourselves uh, involved in. Well, because there is a very real risk and, and temptation and tendency for debt to accrue, I want to talk to you about that this morning. It comes down to simply our attitude, and it really is, that's everything in our life is a matter of attitude, isn't it? How we conduct ourselves, how we approach various aspects of this life. A lot of it is simply attitude. Now, if you look at your notes, I've posed the same question that I did last week to you, and that very simply is, speaking of Christians, and it's a true or false answer, Christians are the very best money managers on earth. True or false? I'm, I'm afraid that we do have to answer that false. I'm going to read to you out of Deuteronomy in a couple of minutes. And, and, and God means for us to be the very best at all we do. And especially with respect to how we handle and how we deal with money. But the reality, unfortunately, is that for, for most Christians today, that, that we have a difficult time with managing uh, our, our resources, our money. And, and that only tells us some things. One, it tells us that we probably are not reaching our potential. We have tremendous potential as believers with respect to all that God entrusts us. Do we manage our relationships the very best we could? What do you think? No, we don't. We don't. Could our marriages be stronger? Could our children grow up with a stronger vision of the kingdom of God and, their, and the God's call in their life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can go across the board, and I think it's fair to say uh, that we are probably not reaching our potential, and certainly we're not reaching our potential when it comes to financial stewardship. How do I say that? Because our own admission is that Christians are not the very best money managers. We need to do a better job. We need to do a better job of coaching each other, encouraging one another, uh, teaching on money, teaching on financial issues. There is more in the Bible about money and finances than there is about heaven and hell. Do you know that? More written in the Bible about those subjects. So apparently, because it's such an important subject to us, it's an important subject to God. Is money important? Oh, yeah. How many want more of it? Oh, not everybody. <laughs> we have also the added dilemma that probably there are a lot of Christians who are seriously in debt. Seriously in debt. In over their heads. We're probably not nearly as good at managing our money and our resources as we think we are. The average Christian doesn't really believe that he or she has a problem when it comes to finances. It's kind of like the drunkard or the, the drug-addicted person or the pornography-addicted person, uh, there's always a tendency in these, in these arenas to live in what, what's called denial, if I can use that language. And people say, well, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. When, in fact, there's a very real problem, and everyone around you knows it. You have a problem. But we don't want to admit to it. And the same thing is true with finances. None of us can afford to, to be self-satisfied and smug about this issue. We need to say, you know what? I want to make sure that I'm right with God with respect to that which he's entrusted to me. Does that make sense to you? In First Chronicles chapter 29, we read this passage last week. I want to rehearse it again with you. Uh, King David acknowledges God's sovereignty over everything. He's the greatest king of Israel expanded the borders of Israel uh, to, the, to the, uh, the furthest that they had ever been. And here's King David acknowledging God's sovereignty over everything. Read with me, beginning at verse 10. Now remember, the context in the background is 
God had called David to call the people, and especially the leaders of Israel, to bring an offering for the building of the temple. And the people responded. And there was an, an incredible, incredible, overwhelming response to the God's call for that offering. To which now David praises God for what God had done in the people's lives. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly. So all the people are gathered. And David stands up as the, as the titular head of Israel and praises God. And he says, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. You see how he's acknowledging God's sovereignty over everything? He says, Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. See, this is, this is part of the reason we gather on the weekends to, to praise his holy name as the congregation, as David had the congregation of the people assemble to praise him for his provision. So when we sing, we sing his praises for his goodness, his provision, his grace, his mercy. Are you tracking with me? Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I, David says, and who are my people, that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Wow, what a, what a stunning statement, what a stunning realization. Lord, it's all from you. We've only given you back a portion of that which you've already given us. But we praise you and we thank you for providing for us so abundantly. I want to suggest to you that, that there is room for improvement in all of our lives in terms of stewardship. Is that fair? Could we be better stewards, all of us? Sure. But what needs to happen first, there, there, there needs to be a change, and the, and the first thing that has to change in all of our lives is our attitude. Now, we still battle with sin in the flesh, don't we? We still struggle. We still find ourselves in those moments of resistance and awkwardness, and we go, mm. anybody dig their heels in about anything? Sure. It all starts with attitude, and and. and and with respect to, to, the, to, to our lives at this juncture, we need to have a, a right attitude about money and about finances and God's will. Now, last week I shared with you three lies, three lies about money that seem to be the truth. You remember that? Then I shared with you three truths about money that seem to be lies. Let me just remind you and rehearse those real quickly with you. Number one, we saw last time that the devil tries to deceive us. Remember, he's called the deceiver. He tries to deceive us that all the church talks about is money. Now, when he does that and we buy into that, the automatic response is that we don't talk about it because we don't want to be accused of talking about it all the time. This is a dilemma that so many pastors have because so many people have bought into this lie that all the church talks about is money. Now, if you're here visiting with us for the first time, <laughs> we do this every two years. <laughs> and you happen to hit it luckily today. That's a lie. It's not the truth. That's not all the church talks about. We learned that the devil tries to get us to believe that money and things can, what, satisfy us. Is that an easy, easy thing to believe? Yeah, oh, if I just had... This, if I just had that, if I just had, and it's a subtle thing. And we think that, boy, if I just had these things, I could, I could really be satisfied. But then you're never satisfied, and it's got to be the next thing. Isn't that true? Paul talks about uh, living a, a contented life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. 
We learned also that the devil tries to convince us that it is our money and we can do with it whatever we want. I'm even going to ask for a show of hands how many people thought that. It's my money. I can do with it. But don't be telling me what to do with my money. <clears throat> Newsflash, it ain't yours. It's on loan to you. And you're going to have to give account one day. I promise you. But the devil, the devil wants to deceive us. The devil wants us to believe that it's ours. And we can do with it whatever we want. We learned, on the flip side, we learned that God is the one who determines how much money we have. It's God. It's His sovereign will and purpose. You say, wait a minute, it's my education, it's my hard work, it's all my investment of time. And Listen, you wouldn't have education, you wouldn't have a job, if God didn't allow you to have it. Don't be so arrogant and prideful as to think that it's, it's all you're doing. God has shown you favor. He has divinely allowed you to be where you are. And we also learn that it's God, too, who can dry up our source of income without a moment's notice, can't he? We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. How he, Here's, the, here's the, the emperor, the most powerful man on earth, the richest man and God in, in a heartbeat stripped him of everything. It's God. We learned that giving to God is the only way out of our financial problems. And again, that, that, that doesn't sound like it's reasonable. It sounds like a lie. But it is the truth. Giving to God is the only way out of financial problems. I know that's an absolute statement. I know that it sounds extreme. You're just going to have to go with me on this and listen as we talk. Or as I talk. (laughs) Now, the first step, the first step on the road to being faithful stewards is to change our attitude and acknowledge the sovereignty of God, not only in our finances, but also in every other area of our life. God, you're sovereign. You're so, you, you rule everything. I'm under your sovereign care, your grace, your provision, your rule. He's sovereign over everything. The next step on the road to becoming faithful stewards is that we have to become aware of and avoid the subtlety of debt. Is debt a delightful thing? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Have you ever filled out, I, I know probably almost everybody here has filled out at some point, filled out a credit application? You're, buying, you're going to buy something, you've got to fill out this application. How long does it take to read the itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny fine print on those things? That's written in very clear English, so you can understand it. Most people don't read that stuff. They just sign away. I remember it wasn't too long ago that uh, you, you could get in the mail. I mean, we got our house. We got credit card applications, credit card applications, credit card applications. just kept flooding. Every day they were coming in the mail. And there's always this low introductory interest rate. Oh, what a deal. At the end, if you signed up, at the end of that introductory period, if you failed to make your minimum monthly payment, the interest rate would go from that low rate to through the roof, wouldn't it? If you keep a balance... If you keep a balance on your credit card, which is what the credit card companies want. Why do they want that? (laughs) Yeah, they're making money off of us. Keep a balance. Oh, yeah. They're going to make a lot of money off of us. And when you read these credit applications, I want you to notice something. Nowhere on the application... Do they mention or even use the word debt? Have you ever noticed that? That word's not on the application. That's by design. 
Debt is subtle. Debt is subtle, and those who try to encourage us to get into debt are subtle themselves, making it sound so attractive. You can have this. Easy monthly payments. You can have this. You can have that. You can have it all. That's why we need to always pay attention, be aware of what we are signing up for. Now, God's will, I'm going to submit to this to you. God's will for us is to be debt-free. Now, I know that in our culture, in our society, debt is a normal thing. We just, that's normal for us. So this whole concept of being debt-free, you say, that's God's will. God's will is for us to be debt-free. Now, let me read to you, I mentioned a moment ago, from Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is a, you might want to turn there and look at this with me. It may, in fact, be on the screens. I'm not sure. Oh, there it is. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning of verse 12. Now listen to this. This is, this, is, this is powerful. Now here's God talking to Israel. But the principles, I believe, are applicable to us. They're cross-cultural principles. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. Now remember, the Israelites were an agrarian culture. They were farmers. They were herds, herdsmen, if you will. And so uh, when, when God speaks in this language, open the heavens, lots of rain, you'll flourish. He's talking to people who, who live in, uh, uh, on the land. He says, but the point is, he says, I want to prosper. I want to bless you. He says, as I do this, you will, now notice this, you will what? You will lend to many nations, but will not borrow from them. You'll be a lender, you're not going to be a borrower. He says, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day, and carefully follow them, you will always be where? At the top and never at the bottom. Who would like to be at the top and not at the bottom? That's not good? Who would like to be the head, not the tail? Yes. Now, what's it predicated on? It's predicated on trusting God and walking in faith, obeying His word. He's talking about every single person in the community. People who call upon Him, people who believe Him. You'd be the head, not the tail. You'd be at the top, not the bottom. Doesn't that sound attractive? Then he says, verse 14, Do not turn aside from the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Now, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be a, 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 a nation that's blessed by God, and the other nations would become jealous, and they'd want to know, why are you so blessed? Why are you prospering? And they would have a basis for a testimony. And the same thing is true for us. I believe with all my heart, Christians, Christians should be the head and not the tail. Why? Well, shouldn't we just be humble? Yes, but that doesn't mean you should be the tail. That we should be at the top, not the bottom. We should, Christians, should be leading by our life and how we live it because we understand the truth and we know the one true God and we're following Him. We should be leading in our businesses, in our communities, in our homes, in our churches. Christians ought to be leading. Would you agree with me? The sad thing is, is that, is that we're not. I mean, our nation's in a mess. Our nation is in a mess. And why is that? Because the godless are ruling. Not God's people. So I see to you just the same thing that Moses said to the people. He's, if you want to be the head, not the tail. If you want to be at the top, not the bottom. Listen to God's words. Listen to what I'm saying to you this morning. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Trust what God is saying to us. God does not want us to be in debt. He would rather that we be lenders instead of borrowers. Listen to what he says in Psalm 37. Verse 26. 
He says that the righteous, I love this, and I want you to, I want you to just pick up on this. The righteous are always what? Always generous and lend freely. Now, how do you know that you're a righteous person? How would you know that you're a righteous person? Now, what did that verse say? Because among other things, you are a what kind of person? Generous person. That you lend freely. Money doesn't have a hold on you. Now, certainly there are other things that characterize righteousness, but here, clearly, the psalmist says, the righteous person is a person who is a generous person. Now, notice the second part of that. He says, their children will be blessed. Now, what's the connection between being a generous person and your children being blessed? What's the connection there? It's not rocket science, right? Your kids grow up, And they see a role model. They get accustomed to graciousness, kindness, generosity, not stinginess, not fear, not anxiety, especially over money. Your kids grow up in that environment and they are blessed. They get blessed because of what their parents are doing. Their parents are trusting God. And you can see the overflow onto the lives of their children. Psalm 112, verse 5. I love this. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. What will come to him? Good. How many want good to come to your life? How many have enough bad already coming to your life? I don't want any more bad. I want good. Well, if you want good, become a generous person. Become a gracious person. Gracious in your forgiveness. Gracious in your forbearance. Gracious in your language. Gracious in your life and how you live it. And God says, good will come to you. Good will come to you. Listen to Jesus' words. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Have we heard that before? Is that hard to do? Oh, yeah. It's, that's one of the hardest things in the world to do. Love your enemy. Now, if you don't know what it means to love your enemy, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gives you a picture of what it looks like to love your enemy. You don't keep a record of wrongs. But we're masters at that, aren't we? Love your enemies. Now, does he stop there? <laughs> no. He says, instead of doing bad to them, do what? Good to them. To them. If I do good to them, you know what they're going to do? They're going to take advantage of me. So, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. You can't say, it's my life. I can do with it as I please. No, no, no. We're under obligation to serve the Lord, and we're under obligation to do good to our enemies. Oh, man. The Apostle Paul underscores that at the end of the 12th chapter of Romans when he says, if your enemy is hungry, what should you do? Don't wait for somebody else to feed him. He's your enemy. You go feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, what should you do? These These are people who are classified as our enemies. What do we typically do to our enemies? We avoid them. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm not going to call you on your birthday and ask how you're doing. We're Christians. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Oh, he's not done. Look at this one. And lend to them. Oh, you're crazy. Lend to them. Yes, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Man, by the time you reach that point, you are, you are a surrendered Christian. Would you agree with me? You've reached, you, you've passed the point of being pathetic. And now you're, now you're, now, 
I'm serious. I mean, you, you, to get here, you've got to go through that environment of being pathetic and whining and crying and resisting and saying, no, he doesn't mean that. Yes, he does. Why? Because it's an exercise in learn, in for us to learn and to grow to be more like Jesus, to not money have, have its hold on us, that we, we lend freely. We don't look to get it back. Wow. Wow. Now notice what he says next. Then, it's only after these things are in place, then your reward will be meager. Is that what it says? No, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. And you say, well, wait a minute, aren't I already a son of the Most High? Aren't I already a child of God because I'm born again? Yeah, 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 but you'll be realizing what it means to be a son of the Most High. You'll be acknowledged and recognized. You're different. You, why aren't more Christians like you? You'll be, you'll be like God. And he goes on and he says, because what? He is kind. Who's he kind to? Us. How are we characterized? Ungrateful and wicked. When Christians should be just the opposite. You want to be like God? Learn to be gracious. Learn to be gracious. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, Let no debt, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to what? Love one another. And you can never pay that debt back, can you? That's a debt you're continuing to pay off every single day. Love one another, love one another, love one another. So I think it's clear. I think it's very clear. God God does not want us to be in debt. He wants us to be lenders instead of borrowers. Unfortunately, the great, great number of people in the Christian community are seriously in debt and some severely in debt. Lenders, not borrowers, does not describe the average church in America, nor does it describe the average Christian either. And yet God says, I want you to be free so that you can lend to many and borrow from none. I want my people to be free. Jesus said, if the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Why do we get ourselves back in bondage again? We all need to get to the place, I think, where where we truly hate debt, hate debt so much, we don't want to be in bondage. Now just imagine, just imagine what it would be like to be totally debt-free. You don't owe a penny to anybody. Wouldn't that be absolutely marvelous? Totally debt-free, so that your paycheck is not already pre-obligated. How many know what I'm talking about? You get that paycheck, and then all of a sudden you go, "Oh, I got to pay this. I got to pay this. I got to pay this." Somebody reminded me this morning too about about the cable bills. You can't live without cable. We'll get to that one. Just hold that thought. What would it be like to be debt free? Wow! Imagine more money than bills. Look at all this money I got. It's not already pre-obligated. You would be free then to give to God, maybe like you've always wanted to give. You would be free then to put money into savings or even start earning interest rather than paying it. You could help others. You could maybe take a vacation. You could... Fix up the house. Heck, you might even be able to buy a house if you're debt-free. You get back into debt. (laughs) Think of what we as a church, think of this. Just just us as a church, but but more than that, the, the whole Christian community. If Christians would really take God seriously over this issue, 
What could Christians accomplish if we were all debt-free? Just think about that. Just in our own congregation, we have some 20 missionaries around the world, just out of this congregation. What if we could send a missionary family to where they believe God's calling them to, and we could support them fully? Now, right now, typically, almost everybody in the missions field, they have to beg, borrow, and steal for extra support. They have to write support letters. They have to do this. They have to jump through all these hoops to get enough money to live on. What if we were debt-free as a congregation, every single person, and we could, we could totally, totally support every single missionary family so they wouldn't have to worry about money and they could absolutely focus on the ministry that God had called them to? Would that be an absolute exciting thing to do? Would you love to share into something like that? Think about that. But that requires, it requires that Christians pay attention to what God does and pay attention to the kingdom, and the kingdom of God is first in their life. I quoted to you last week from Larry Burkett. He, he's written a number of books, and he wrote a really good book on, on debt. He's called, the title is Debt-Free Living, Larry Burkett. And I want to quote to you from uh, a paragraph in his, in, his, uh, in his book. He says, Regardless of how it seems today, Debt is not normal in any economy. Think what he just said. Regardless of how it seems today, debt is not normal in any economy and should not be normal for God's people. Now, we, we treat debt like it's normal. Everybody's in debt. We're all in debt. Our country's in debt. We live in a debt-ridden society, he says, that is now virtually dependent on the constant expansion of credit. Here's how bad things are. We are dependent on the constant expansion of credit to keep the economy going. In other words, borrow, keep borrowing, keep borrowing, keep borrowing, because if you stop borrowing, everything is going to implode. That's a horrible place to be in. He says, this is a symptom of a society that no longer is willing to follow God's directions. (sighs) Over in Malachi, he says, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you. Why? Because we've just blown God off. Oh, he's convenient when we want something. But to humble ourselves and to walk in faith and obedience to his will and to his word, everything... Well, that's a whole different story for modern Christians today. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad? The devil leads us into debt so he can keep us in bondage and keep us from doing great things for God and for his kingdom. All because of debt. So I would suggest to you that for the most part, we, we need to have a right attitude about these things. We need to change our attitude about debt. And so to help us do that, I have prepared seven simple suggestions. Attitude adjustment suggestions. Would you like to know what these are? Okay, here we go. Number one. Going into debt makes you a servant to someone else other than God. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Now, with that in mind, recall Jesus' words. You cannot serve two masters. So if I'm in debt to some institution, some person, they're a master in my life, aren't they? I'm enslaved to them. I'm in bondage. And over here, I've got God. So... I can't serve two masters. I'm going to be compromised. When you borrow, instead of God being your Lord and God being your boss, somebody else now is calling the shots. Somebody else is dictating to you about the use of this money that God's entrusted to you. And when you don't make your payments, they'll start calling some shots maybe you don't want to hear. 
Number two, it's clearly a sin if you borrow and do not repay. Now, there are people, and, and sadly, Christians today, who borrow and do not repay. Psalm 37 says, The wicked borrow. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. If, you're, if you borrowed and you're not repaying what you borrowed, you're, you're classed biblically amongst the wicked. The wicked. Should we be paying our bills? Should we be paying off our debts? Absolutely. The reason the righteous can give generously is that they're not in debt. I, can, I have an abundance. I'm not in debt. I can give generously. And if I give generously, how will it give, be given back to me? Yeah, be poured into my lap, Jesus says. Why? Because I've proved faithful in my giving and God can trust more to me to give more. He doesn't give me what He gives me to lavish on myself. He gives it to me so that I can learn to be a good steward with it. Number three, the Bible warns that it's better not to go into debt. doesn't absolutely forbid it, but it's better not to go into debt. Let me explain. We've all, we've all read this verse at some point or other, and we've all kind of leaned on it. Proverbs seventeen eighteen. Now, this is the NIV translation. In the ESV, it's translated more properly. But in the NIV, it says, A man lacking in judgment strikes hands in pledge and puts up security for his neighbor. Now, historically and typically, we read that verse as it's been, as it's been translated there. And we say, well, someone comes and says, would you, would you co-sign for me? Oh, no, 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 I can't co-sign for you. The Bible doesn't say, it says I shouldn't co-sign for you. That's not exactly what it says. Unfortunately, it's been translated that way in many of the modern translations. It seems to be describing one who goes into debt for his neighbor. But the verse literally translated is this. The man lacking in judgment strikes hands in pledge... In other words, he goes into debt, makes an agreement for debt in the presence of his neighbor. Now remember, business in the ancient Near East, and particularly in Israel, was conducted in the, in the, in the square, the town square, the, town, the gates of the city. This is where all the business was conducted, public and private. And so you're conducting business, and you're, 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 you're pledging to a debt, and what the verse is suggesting is that not that you not go into debt for your neighbor, but rather that you don't go into debt and all of your neighbors know you're in debt. Would you rather your neighbors know your business in the sense that they know that you're a debt-free person, or would you rather they know that you're in debt? What do you think? Yeah, debt-free. Because a debt-free person is a person who commands some measure of respect, don't they? People marvel at that, especially today in our culture. They go, you are debt-free? You don't owe any money? Wow. How did you do it? Well, since you asked, I'd be happy to tell you. That commands respect. But if your neighbors know that you're, you're in debt, that's not a respectable thing. Number four, the, the longest term of debt God's people took on in the Old Testament was how many years? Seven years. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 1, we read this. God says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Verse 2, every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israel. Now, why would they do that every seven years, cancel the debts? It's so that the resources of, of, the, of Israel would not be concentrated in the hands of a few. So every seven years, the debts were canceled. Lands were returned to the original owners. Uh, the slaves were freed. If you were, in, if you were an indentured to your Israelite neighbor, you were set free. So there was an equality there that God had built into his law for the people. Now, it's interesting, I think. God doesn't say that 
that we should never have made the loan in the first place. But he does say, now is the time you should cancel it. The point I want to make is the Bible doesn't absolutely forbid borrowing or debt. It just says there's a whole lot better way to do it. Make sense? Here's number five. You are not in control of your own future. Now, that may come as a surprise to some, but you're not in control. Who's in control? God is. Listen to what James says. He says, now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's so easy for us to presume, isn't it? How many of you have said, hey, see you tomorrow? I've taken the say, see you tomorrow, Lord willing. <laughs> I've got the guys in my gym now saying that. See you tomorrow, Lord willing. Oh, yeah, that's right, Lord willing. See, that's acknowledging God. He's sovereignty over everything, over my time, my very life. So we're not in control of our own future. You don't know that you're going to have more money down the road to pay for what you've just gone in debt for. Oops. What was I thinking? You can't possibly know what's going to happen in the future. But you know what? People who want to sell us stuff, they'll tell you you can. They'll say, oh, you can make this payment. It's not that big. I mean, look at the advertising for cars today on on TV. Low monthly lease payments. People aren't even buying cars anymore. Now you can lease them for a low monthly lease. So easy. Lock yourself in. We're not in control of our future. We have no guarantees in that sense. Here's number six. When you go into debt, you are asking someone else other than God to meet your needs. That's in effect what you're doing. You're asking someone else other than God to meet your needs. The Apostle Paul says this. He writes to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. This is a verse that everybody loves to quote. Anybody know the verse? What's the verse say? And my God will supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus, right? So... We love to take that verse and lift it out of the context and apply it indiscriminately to people. Well, my God will supply all your needs. Will he? Wait a minute. It's conditional. Now, Paul is writing to the Philippians, and the Philippians were dirt poor people. They were among what's known as the Macedonian churches in the district of Macedonia in Greece. And so he says this to them. He says that to them because of their incredible cooperation and participation in the offering for the Jewish saints who were impoverished in Jerusalem. And when you read the book of Acts, you read Paul's missionary journeys, and he's, he's, every place he's going, he's taking an offering. This is part of his strategy to bring unity between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. He says to the Gentile believers, now you need to be supporting your Jewish brothers and sisters down in Jerusalem. We're going to take up an offering. Because they were suffering. They were impoverished. And so the Philippians were incredibly gracious and generous in their gift. And we know that because of what Paul says to the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians were a church and they were, they were just into themselves for the most part. And they were kind of a chaotic group. And he was rebuking them again and again and again and correcting them continuously. And with respect to money and this offering, let me read to you what he says to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
he's going to he's going to embarrass them. He says, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, I wish we had the time to parse that verse and go through every single word and give you a sense, a greater sense of what those words mean. Extreme poverty. He says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, what does it mean to give beyond your ability? It means to literally deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself so that you could give even more beyond your normal ability to give. This is where these, these Philippian people were. And he says... Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They could never have done this. They could never participate unless they had first given themselves to God. Once you give yourself to God, nothing else matters. You are free. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're totally free. If there's things in your life that are tripping you up, those are the things you surrender to God. You say, Lord, okay, this is yours, this is yours. It's important. So he writes to these Corinthians and he shames them, if you will, into participating in the offering for their Jewish brothers and sisters because they had been slow in contributing. And this is why he writes back to the Philippians because of their incredible generosity beyond their ability. He says, and don't sweat it. My God will meet all your needs because you've given so generously. You don't need to be afraid. Beloved, when we go into debt, we are trusting the bank rather than God. Number seven. When you go into debt and mortgage your future, as many people do, unfortunately, you end up affecting your whole family. You end up affecting your whole family. Proverbs 11, verses 28 and 29. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. I mean, if your riches are your God, you're going to fall. I trust, just believe me, that's what he says. But the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. He who brings trouble on his family will inherit only wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise. So he connects being trouble, bringing trouble on a person's family by trusting in their riches, making that the priority. You go into debt, you mortgage your future. You also mortgage the future of your family. Now to help us, I think, help us have a right attitude towards debt. I want you to think of debt with these four words. You ready? Dumb explanation for buying things. (laughs) Now, if you have to use debt to buy something, I want you to think these four words. Don't even buy that. <laughs> if you look up the word debt in a, in a uh, thesaurus or a word finder book, you know, one of those books that are phenomenal. I use them all the time. Here's what you find. These are all synonyms or, or synonymous phrases for the word debt. It gives you a feeling for debt. Obligation. Encumbrance, in the red, pound of flesh, arrears, inability to pay, built, bound, beholden, up to one's ears, over one's head, mortgage to the hilt, in the poverty trap, unable to keep the wolf from the door, hard up, beaten down, financially embarrassed, strapped, stripped, fleeced, busted. I submit to you, debt is not good. 
Do you know that there's only five things to do with money? Only five things you can do with money. Five things. Number one, you can give it. Is that a good thing? Number two, you can save it. Number three, you can invest it. Number four, you can lend it. And number five, you can spend it. <laughs> Those are the only five things you can do with money. So why blow it by getting into debt? By losing it through paying interest to somebody else, it makes no sense whatsoever. Have I convinced you yet? Now, you may be sitting there thinking, you know, Pastor, I am in debt up to my eyeballs. I am fleeced. The wolf's at the door. I'm in debt up to, up to my eyebrows. I, I don't know, is it possible for even me to get out of debt? What do you think? Absolutely. I have a plan. Regardless of who you are, Regardless of how much debt you're in, you can also get out of debt if you want to. You just have to want to bad enough, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I go through seasons where I pack on a few extra pounds. And I always say this, I've got to lose weight. Especially when i got to put on my good pants. A little tight. But I'm never going to really lose five or six pounds unless I what? Really want to. I can say I want to all day long. But unless I really want to, I'm not going to lose weight. The road of life is littered with good intentions, isn't it? you got to really want to. So, if you're going to get out of debt, here's number one. You have to make an irrevocable commitment, an irrevocable commitment to God, to yourself, that you are going to get out of debt. You have to say absolutely irrevocably, I am going to get out of debt. In fact, not only do you make that commitment to God and yourself, you make that commitment to other people in your life who will, you will allow them to hold you accountable. You can, you give them permission. You say, I want you, if you will be willing to help me and just remind me that I made a commitment to get out of debt. So when you see me with that new thing, Majig, then you just say, well, I thought you were getting out of debt. How much did you spend on that? Shame me if you have to. <laughs> Number two, once you make that irrevocable commitment to get out of debt, it should be obvious, don't take on any more debt. You say, that's it. I'm not borrowing anything else. If you have to use debt to borrow something, what should you be saying to yourself? That's right. (laughs) Don't even buy that. (laughs) Number three, put God first in your giving. Put who first? God. Now remember, sometimes it's a little fuzzy for people. You're not giving to the pastor. You're not giving to the church. Who are you giving to? You're giving to God. You're giving to God. And that means when you give, you give what? Faithfully, generously, regularly. We give our first fruits. Proverbs chapter 3. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote this. He says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. In other words, This is in Proverbs. Proverbs is called wisdom literature. So in effect, he's saying it is a wise thing to honor God from your wealth. With the first fruit, first fruits of all your crops. Now remember, this is an agrarian culture. So they're thinking in terms of of crops and animals and so forth. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In other words, God says, I'll provide for you. You trust me. Give the first fruits. Now, when I was a brand new Christian, I didn't know any of this stuff. And I, I was invited to participate in a Bible study. And the people in the Bible study would kind of fill in the blanks for me as, as I was learning more and more about Christianity. And I heard this word tithe thrown about. 
And I didn't know what that was. And so in the Bible study, my dear, dear brothers and sisters, I said, let me ask you a question. I hear this word tithe. What is that? So they explained it to me. They said, it is a tenth, a tenth of whatever God provides for you that you return back to him as a free will offering. I said, a tenth, a tenth of, of my money. That's right. I said, hmm. A tenth. Now, how, how did we arrive at a tenth? Where'd that come from? Well, it comes from the fact that we have how many fingers? Ten represents the whole. A proportional amount that is the minimum that you could give of the whole that represents the whole would then be what? A tenth. So I got ten fingers, I give one finger. That represents. You follow me? That's where it came from. Ancient Near Eastern principle and habit. So they said, they said, they said, tithe means you give a tenth. What was my next question, do you suppose? That's right. Was on the, is this on, is the tenth on the gross or the net? <laughs> See, I'm still not there yet, clearly, right? And they said, it's on the gross. I said, you mean before I pay my taxes? That money that I'll never see? I'm supposed to give on the on the ground. That's right. It's the first fruits. I went, okay. And then I had a third question. I said, does everybody do this? And they said, everybody does it. Okay, I don't want to be the only odd man out. I guess I'll do it too. Everybody does it. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Now, if we're not doing that, the Bible says, guess what? We are robbing God. <gasps> How can you say that? Because God says it. Let me read to you. Familiar passage to many of you, Malachi chapter 3. God asks this rhetorical question. Will a man rob God? Now, you and I would say, who would dare try to sneak into God's storehouse and rob him? He knows everything. That would be the stupidest thing you could do. Rob God. So God says to his people, Would a man rob God, and yet you rob me? And they respond, and they say, Well, how, how do we rob you? He says, In tithes and offerings. Say that with me. Tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings. Now, there's some people who take their tithe and they split it up. And they say, well, I, I give to God in all these different places. No, those are offerings. The tithe, he says, now follow with me. He says, you are under curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. And I submit to you that our nation's under a curse because we're robbing God. We're robbing him of his glory. And he's just stepped back. He said, okay, that's what you want. Go for it. Chapter 1 of Romans Paul says that God will give us over. Give us over. And you read chapter 1 of Romans and you see the very things he describes happening in our world. God has given us over to all godlessness. We're under a curse. He says, you're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, of course, the storehouse in ancient Israel was the temple. Can we make a, a, a comparison to the local church being the storehouse? I think it's reasonable to do that. When you shop, and you shop at Albertsons, do you go to Vaughn's to pay your bill? Where you buy your food, do you go pay, you pay it where you buy it, right? Where should you pay your tithes? To the storehouse where you get fed, right? If this is your church, you ought to be tithing. And you can make offerings, because periodically we do ask for offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. There is no other place in the Bible where God says, test me. He says, come on, test me. Test me. I dare you. Test me. 
and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you'll not have enough room for it. Who, who in their right mind could not take him at his word? Okay, I'm going to test you. I'm going to do this. Here's number four, getting out of debt. Develop a written plan. What do we call a written plan for getting out of debt? A budget. Begins with B. That's right, budget. Stick to it. Write a budget. Stick to it. Stick to it. Number five, set an attainable time frame to get out of debt. Now, Larry Burkett in his book, Debt-Free Living, suggests that all of us should be able to get fully out of debt within seven years. He says that's a, that's a reasonable time frame. Now, if you think, well, that's, I can't get out of debt in seven years. I, don't, I can't envision it. Well, set a time frame that's reasonable to you and stick to it. You've you got to say... I'm going to be out of debt by such and such a date and make that declaration and tell other people I'm going to be out of date by this I'm out of debt by this date. Help them hold you accountable. If you don't set a goal, if you don't write a budget, you'll never do it and you'll never get out of debt. You got to do whatever it takes, which leads me to point number 6. You might have to adjust your lifestyle. Oh. Eating out no more eating out. Yeah, but it's so easy. That's the problem. you got to develop a discipline. Cook your own meals. It's a lot cheaper. You'll save a lot more money. Say eating out. Going shopping. Eh, no more shopping. Wait a minute. i got to go shopping. If you've got to go shopping, we have big lots. <laughs> we have the dollar store. we got the 99-cent store. we got garage sales. <laughs> you don't believe me? Talk to my wife. I mean, you just got to look at your lifestyle. There, there's, you're, you're just spending money probably that you don't need to spend on things that you don't really need to impress people you don't like. <laughs> you maybe have to downsize. I talked to a family this weekend already who the, the rent is killing them. This is the most expensive place, one of the most expensive places in the world to live, the South Bay. It's a beautiful place to live, but it's really expensive. And there are lots of people here who are killing themselves to live here. They just simply can't afford it. You may have to face that decision. We've got to move. We've got to move. You have to move to another part of the state. You have to move out of state. We have a lot of families who have moved out of state simply because they just cannot afford to live here. It's killing them. You may have to downsize. You may have to face that reality if you're going to be debt-free. And number seven, you've got to begin to systematically pay off all your debts. You start with the smallest ones first. Pay those off. And then the money that you use to pay those off, you pay off the next debt. And then that money goes to pay off the next debt. You will pay off those debts much more quickly than you can possibly imagine if you will stay on that path. Pay off your debts systematically. Beloved, I, I, just, I believe that we should be committed to becoming debt-free. A debt-free people. What God can do with people who are debt-free, with the resources He can entrust to them. If you've got more months left at the end of your money... It's your fault. It's not God's. You've got to be a better steward of what he's entrusted to you. You've got to change your attitude. God wants his people to be absolutely freely out of debt. And with his help and for his glory, we can achieve that goal. But you've got to make a commitment. You've got to make a commitment. I believe there's no question that God wants us out of debt. And I believe there's no question God is willing to do whatever it takes to help us get out of debt. I know that because you and I entered this world with a tremendous debt of sin, didn't we? 
And God knew that wasn't good. And so he sent Jesus to pay off that debt, a debt we could never pay, in order that we could be free. Again, Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. There is no freedom and certainly no feeling in the world like being free from the debt of sin. Man, just my life lifts when I know that that debt has been paid. And the next best feeling is to be free from the debts of this world. Commit to be debt-free. Be willing to do whatever it takes. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you, Lord, that you are a good God and you tell us the way to life. And Lord, so many times we go off that way. We lean on our own understanding. And we thank you that we can return and that you'll lead us back and you'll instruct us in the way we should go. Lord, have your way in our life. Keep us mindful of these these realities, these issues, so that we can be people who truly glorify you and be excellent stewards over all that you've entrusted to us. Lord, strengthen your church, I pray. Cause us, Lord, to be people who take seriously your word and your commands because they do lead us to life and life abundant. We love you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor once again. Pronounce a blessing on your neighbor, if you would. Share with your neighbor one thing that's a takeaway for you from this morning. And then thirdly, if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss.